Hey everyone, welcome to Pieces of You, a show about life through the lens of four fierce and resilient women who lost their moms too damn soon. Each episode will feature stories to inspire hope, healing, and connection. Because if we work together, we can make the broken better. Hello, this is Sarah, and I am your host for episode seven. Last episode was the first of our four-part series, The Impact of Early Mother Loss. Today, we are diving specifically into the world of mental health and how grief and early loss can impact mental health. This episode contains a content warning related to the topic of mother loss. Please check the show notes for a more detailed description. Well, speaking of mental health, how is everyone feeling today? I'm good. good. <laughs> oh, good. Really? It's just good. Yeah. It's hot out today, so I'm feeling that a little. I'm not used to the heat yet, so mm-hmm. that's exciting. A little warm. I had a girls weekend with my high school girls this weekend. Fun. Which was a blast. We just, yeah, we had a ridiculously good time. We we rode on one of those ginormous banana boat float <gasps> things behind a punt. We are too old for that. Yep. And <laughs> I mean, I've never laughed so hard, but like we are all texting today. Our bodies hurt because we shouldn't do that probably ever again. But, you know, that sounds get awesome. living or get dying. <laughs> <laughs> That is awesome. That's so, a yeah. fun bonding. I had a girls weekend too, and I do not mm. typically have girls weekends or like group trip weekends. It was a bachelorette party. It was amazing. And it reminded me how important it is to be connected to people in person, especially yes. after COVID. It felt really, mm. it felt scary at first and I was super anxious, but coming home, I was just like, mm. I felt like full, just like mm-hmm. energetically. Yes. That's awesome. Well, I said good, but actually I'm anxious, not about recording today. I just am dealing with anxiety. It's a new thing for me. It's gotten super intense, specifically over the last month or so. So I actually have taken some steps here to get some help besides journaling, meditating, doing some working out, went to the doctor on Friday and I'm starting medication. I started medication on Friday. Wow. Yeah. That's exciting. I'm really proud of myself. You know, it's something I feel like I would tell everyone else to do. And it just took me so long to get there. So I don't, I'm not feeling really better yet though, because it takes yeah. <laughs> like a month to work, but um, yeah. I'm hopeful. For but you. like maybe a placebo effect a little bit, you know? I believe in that from it's, the start. That's not happening, but <laughs> Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate the suggestion though. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna send you those vibes. Aaron, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. I had like a change of plans this weekend. So all of a sudden it was wide open for me and I like used the time. I like connected with a couple of friends and we had like a fire in our backyard with some friends. Our chef friend came over and like made us some bomb food and it was yeah we just connected oh, cool. and I like went to brunch with my friend and like Fancy. felt cute like put on a cute outfit and that's something that I do like I use like my clothes and like fashion often to like feel like powerful or like really good so Love yeah it. I had like a very impromptu like self-care weekend lots of connecting with like friends and lovely people in my life so yeah I feel Aww. feel pretty good Wonderful. Well, thank you all for sharing. Before we like really dive in deeper, I want to get on the same page about what mental health even means. Like, what 
do we mean when we say mental health? For this, I turn to the great Wikipedia, which cites the World Health Organization. So I feel like that's pretty legit. It says, mental health defined by the World Health Organization is a state of well-being in which the individual realizes his or her own abilities, can cope with the normal stresses of life, can work productively and fruitfully, and is able to make a contribution to his or her community. According to WHO, World Health Organization, mental health includes subjective well-being, perceived self-efficacy, autonomy, competence, intergenerational dependence, and self-actualization of one's intellectual and emotional potential, among others. All right, so I'm going to pause there because that's a lot. That was a lot. There's one more piece I want to jump into, but did that make sense, what I just read? Do you need me to pick it apart a little? Okay. Mm -mm. I was struck when I saw this by how comprehensive this is and how um, complex. And mental health, as we know, is complex, but I feel like this did a good job breaking it up into the various components. And then the last bit talks about, like, from the perspectives of positive psychology or um, what's referred to as holism, which I actually had not heard that word before, but... Um, It sounds like holistic, and I'm assuming they are related because when you look at the definition of holism, it's, you know, the idea that everything is interconnected, mind, body, and that definitely is the approach I prefer to take. But so they're saying from, you know, that perspective, mental health may include an individual's ability to enjoy life and to create a balance between life activities and efforts to achieve psychological resilience. And then, important to note that cultural differences, subjective assessments, and competing professional theories all affect how one even comes to define mental health. So all that information just to prove, like, how little we actually know and how unclear it actually is. But (laughs) that's what I was thinking. I was like, that is just okay. (laughs) So it gives us, like, somewhere to start, I guess. Yeah, it's very floaty. I was like, it feels not... um... Concrete. It feels not tangible. Yes. Like, very uh, like you can't grasp it. It's it's not a tangible yep. thing. Totally. It didn't feel very good, honestly. Like I needed something more tangible. Yeah. But yeah. also I have to say I'm really bugged by the word balance. I think that is something that recently our culture has really put pressure on people to find and it's so unrealistic. It does not exist. I don't even know what that means. It's unattainable. It's unattainable and it makes no sense and I'm tired of that because it's like we you need to find more balance. No, I no, I and it's so that's so different depending on each individual and Shadia, what were you going to say? Well, I was just saying are you thinking in the way of like a work life balance yes. for example or all of balancing, it. This is yeah, all of it. I mean This is a fantastic discussion so far because I happen to be obsessed with balance. I'm one of the people who is like preaching this balance thing. And I am so intrigued, Christine, by your take on it. Where do you feel like it is misguided? I just think it it puts a pressure on a human to try to do all the things equally. And and I just think when you look at day to day... It's just not realistic. 
And then if you don't meet that expectation for yourself, then there might be shame or fa- failure around that. And that's where I think it goes wrong. So I don't ever want to feel bad about not being balanced. <laughs> like this is, this impacts your mental health negatively. It's in my own life, having four kids. And there's so many unknowns that will come up for me in a day <laughs> that yes. will totally change my plans about going for a walk or or working out or, you know, where those are things that I think are really helpful where I'm like, this is lending towards a more balanced life for myself. And and sometimes it just doesn't work out. And then I don't want to feel badly about not getting those things done and not finding balance in my day because of real life. Can I share something um, that I like to use instead of the word balance? I like to use the word duality when we're talking about like trying to find a balance, typically people mean between two things like work, life, like my mental health and how it applies to whatever. But I've been using the phrase duality a lot more because I feel like it it holds space for a bunch of those variables where they don't have to be equal. It doesn't have to be balanced. I can hold space for this emotion and also this. I can call this out and then also feel that I, I just think that... Um, there needs to be more space for this and. So I've been using the term duality a lot and like holding duality for this or like holding space for these two or multiple things to be at the same time. And specifically in terms of like mental health or talking about our emotions or how we're processing things. So I like to use that instead of balance because I agree. I think it's 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 this like unrealistic and unattainable image that we have of almost like you'll be happier when you achieve this. It's like an achievement unlocked thing. And that's not, that's not how that works. Totally agree. Yes, Aaron. I, duality was like a, like a mind explosion when I discovered that that was even a concept. And I think it's human, right? To have lots of feelings and experiences at once. But I think recognizing that is easier said than done. And like you said, holding space for that takes work and practice. And one of my favorite like dualities, as you mentioned, is like the grateful and sad kind of experience of being a motherless daughter. Like it's heavy. Mm-hmm. I want to add mine are sorrow and joy. Oh. I think about those holding those two things at the same time. Beautiful. Well, if anyone else <laughs> thinks of dualities, this this is a great this is a great question. And for our listeners too, you know what dualities uh, do you notice kind of coming up for you on a regular basis even? And I feel like we actually have talked about two different types of dualities. I, at first thing, Christine was really talking about physical action dualities, right? Like holding space, like the action steps of taking care of your kids and like your plan for the day for it to be balanced between your, what you need to get done, your kids, your husband, whoever it may be in your life. And then I think there's like the emotional duality. Mm. So I think both are kind of important um, in there and both can be used in that. Can you talk about that a little more, Shadia? Well, yeah. I mean, I am a person that really thrives on balance. To get balanced is like 99% of preparation because I am not balanced if I start my day without like a plan. But that's, again, totally me. But then to Christine's point, that plan might get 100%, you know, flipped upside down and I have to just be okay with that. 
But knowing that I have a plan going into the day just makes me feel better, even if it doesn't land where it needs to be, because I know that there's tomorrow. So I can rework the plan to adjust for tomorrow. I always have thrived on, I'm not even going to call it balance, a schedule. Like I just am very much minute by minute of like what I need to do during the day. And not always, but a lot of the time, Um, especially being like a freelancer, trying to fit in work and obviously creating podcasts and whatever else. But I probably feel like I struggle the most with the emotional duality out of guilt because I don't usually feel that great about feeling joy and sorrow. Like having a combination of that, it feel it doesn't make me feel comfortable. And I don't really know because I just feel like I can't hold both. I was trying to get at that earlier with like, you know, we say these things like, you know, in theory, but in practice, they are they can be extremely challenging. I would have to think deeper, but I know there are dualities for me that I also am not able to hold at this time. And honestly, that's part of why I go to therapy is to have someone help me create that space or give me permission to feel things that we're told or kind of conditioned to think can't exist at the same time. Yeah. How do you guys hold space Mm -hmm. for that emotional duality? I mean, like, how do you tactfully like, you know, tangibly, whatever, how do you do that? How does that work? For me, the biggest part of that was allowing myself to even be open to the idea that these things can all exist in the same space. Um, So like naming those emotions is very important because like, if you can't name it, then it doesn't exist in your brain and you can't process it. Mm -hmm. Calling it out and naming it and then just like being validated and Sarah, to your point, part of the reason why like I go to therapy too is having to recondition of being raised or grown into a space where like you weren't allowed to feel these things or name them or process them, let alone hold them at the same time as this other emotion or feeling that you're having. So that's been a big part of my journey is even just naming them and being validated in the fact that you can hold space for them at the same time. That's been important to me, even just to validate it. Yeah, I feel the same. I mean, I think for me, it's acknowledging, naming, what, you know, same thing, Erin. It's, I, I just use the word acknowledge, but just, I, you know, I can think of so many instances where I feel two seemingly opposing things at one time and just being able to say, yes, this is, this exists and it's okay. And, and it, and it's rightfully so that you feel these two things at the same time. And this also, I think is where boundaries and, um, I don't know what other words used to describe, like the idea of just being really conscious of who you surround yourself with and the spaces that you kind of allow yourself to just be. And I encourage you to this is something I'm working on is create more of those spaces in my life where I can just be myself. I don't feel like I have to act a certain way or put on, I mean, to an extent, you know, we all have to kind of adapt to different environments, but being surrounded by people or in a space where you feel like however you are is okay is a huge part of that too. And sometimes that means being alone, being with Mm -hmm. yourself. Mm -hmm. So I, I do spend a lot of time with myself. I was just going to say, Sarah, I, I look at it as an act of self-love. It really feels like that. Mm-hmm. And that's new for me, too. Oftentimes, it feels like I'm loving my younger self who's showing up. Well, and as parents, I mean, you both have kids. Do you find that you 
sometimes have to help your kids navigate, you know, a really complex emotional experience. And that maybe helps you then understand it. Yeah. Oh my God. So much right now for me. I mean, I have a 15 year old, my, who's my oldest and has, who has, yeah, who has gone through some stuff. And I mean, it's, it's intense. And then also a 13 year old. It is such a growing experience. I will also say being 15, when my mom died, really recognizing, wow, Christine, you did that all by yourself. No one was there to witness you, to help you navigate, to validate you. No one. So I am endlessly grateful to be able to be present for my daughters. Um, and I, I have two other children as well, but they're younger, so we're not quite there with some of that stuff. But um, I'm endlessly grateful to be present in the way that I have been able to. And I'm endlessly grateful to be friends with Christine so that when my girls become teenagers or get into more difficult conversations, I'll be like, <laughs> what do you do in this situation? <laughs> that's good. Yes. That's what yeah. friends are for. As you know, per usual, this conversation is taking twists and turns. We spent longer talking about, well, Aaron, you brought up duality, which was not even something I had that had come to mind when I was preparing for this episode. And it is clearly such a central piece of mental health. And I'm so grateful you brought that up to kind of rewind a tiny bit. I'm curious for people, like when did you even become aware of mental health as like a concept, like that it was like a thing. Who's going to start. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've shared this before, but I maybe not with, I have with all of you, maybe not on the podcast yet, but two years after my mom died, uh, my dad was diagnosed with colon cancer. And really in those two years following her death, I was largely in denial because no one was talking about it. You know, I, I focused on my friends, school, boys. And so I just, it was, I shoved that down. Um, but when my dad was diagnosed with colon cancer, I had the realization that, oh shit, I might not have parents. And so I became depressed and I was clinically depressed, whatever that means. But I mean, literally could not, I could not get up in the morning. Um, I was a straight A student. I took school very seriously. I literally couldn't even concentrate on anything. Like my brain was not working the way it used to. So I ended up being hospitalized um, my, the end of my junior year of high school for six weeks. I was 17 when it, when it became real clear what mental health was. And uh, I look back at that time and my time in the hospital uh, changed my life. I say it saved my life. I went from feeling no feelings, nothing dark, deep, hole I was stuck into, you know, experiencing joy again. And since then, it, it's still, it's been a challenge, right? Depression has weaved itself uh, in and out of my life for, you know, the last ooh, 30 years. So you said, Christine, that your mental health started to decline, like around, like you said, when your dad was diagnosed. So that was a couple of years Two years after my mom died. Two yeah. years after your mom died. And here, you know, we're saying mental health, but did you like know what to call it? Like what, I'm curious, like, was it gradual? Was it like a sudden kind of like, um, who, like who noticed? Like, how did you know that it was time to get help? Mm. I don't remember if it was gradual. Yeah. Uh, I got to the point of asking for help. Okay. So 
I don't remember anyone coming to me and, and saying, are you okay? I remember going to my dad and saying, I need help. Like, wow. I can't, I can't function. Oh, look at me getting all teary eyed. <laughs> well, yeah, you're going back to some painful memories. And again, that's why we put the content warnings out there. And, you know, we all check in about this as we record in between recordings, but obviously everything we talk about here is extremely deep and sensitive and we touch on our wounds. And do you think about that much, Christine? Like, is this, do you go back to that place in your head often or is this rare? Yeah, I probably do. I I think about it a bit. I mean, it might just be because of the work that I do though, too, that I'm I'm talking about this more um, than maybe the average person. But I, I do go back. I will also say, I think I'm at a place in my life where I'm doing more work on loving that girl that was so wounded. Um, so I think I'm going back to from a place of trying to love her and recognize what a big, big thing um, I went through really with no guidance um, and just just sending so much love to who I was as a, as a young girl. She deserves every ounce and more. I think I started thinking about mental health when I was out of college and in one of my first careers, not really before that. I mean, I probably should have been, but I didn't. And I just felt an extreme amount of anxiety, largely due to my work, but just I think there's underlying stuff that I never really learned how to deal with true stress and other situations. So I went to a doctor and she put me on Prozac and Xanax at the same time, which is a bit extreme when you've never been on any meds. And I remember going into a meeting with a client the next day and I was a zombie, like just a zombie. And I hated it. I didn't want to be a zombie. Um, So I immediately just like got off of that. And then throughout, like since then, I've been on other meds um, that have been much more of a balance, a low dose that just, for me, it's like just taking the edge off. I was always concerned about like losing my drive or losing my, you know, charisma or whatever by taking meds. And I think a lot of people worry about that. But I feel like if you get on the right one, or just start, you know, low or whatever it is, that's right for you. It, It really can just kind of like brings out the best in me to tell you the truth. Um, and I've been off and on it. Like I couldn't be on it when I was pregnant, the one I was on. And so that was also really hard, but I don't foresee myself getting off these meds anytime soon. And I'm really okay with that. I know people like want to get off it and that's totally fine. But for me, that's not going to, uh, (laughs) that's not a solution at this time. So You, Shadi, it sounds like we're noticing like the stress and anxiety for a while before, like, and in terms of, so it was when you got to work in your, was it your career you said that kind of brought it out? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because one of my questions that people can integrate into, you know, any response throughout this whole interview is like what your mental health was like prior, you know, to this like triggering event, you know, this loss, this major traumatic event, um, just out of curiosity. So something to think about. But when I hear you talk, Shadia, it sounds like, would you say maybe you're someone with a more anxious like temperament? I don't know if I, I mean, I've always been, let's say like maybe more high strung, but I 
I never really dealt with things. So therefore, um, and I had actually a really happy childhood. And so I don't really feel like I probably, well, I didn't open up to it. So I covered it up really well. So I just, I didn't really actually have a lot of mental health issues before that time, or I just didn't deal with it, which is accurate, but it never got extreme. And then in college, I was just trying to do every, I don't know. So no, I just, it really, my mental health journey really did not start until after college. Like I did not start getting the effects of it, of probably my past until that time. And then with kids and it just kept enveloping. So. Okay. And similar to Christine's, it started with like seeking medical help, like going to the doctor. Yeah. And, uh, well, I think I went to a, I went to a therapist and then after that, and that really helped as well. And I still see a therapist off and on, which I love therapy. I love speaking to somebody who is not connected to my circle and somebody who can see it from the outside. You know, I always go into every therapy session, like, oh, I don't really have much to talk about this time. I probably should just cancel or whatever. And then I get in there and I'm just like, yeah. I'm just unload. Yeah. And I'm like, I yes. didn't know that was oh, in yeah. me. Oh, Do you yeah. guys ever do that? Okay. Yes. <laughs> Well, Aaron, how about for you? What do you what are your earliest recollections of mental health? My earliest recollections of it are this vague notion of something that isn't talked about and if anybody in my life had issues with it, I had no idea. It was something that was that was like other than me, other than my family, other than my circumstances, which is really interesting because I think that like I knew like even as a kid, um, my parents were separated and there was a lot of like, kind of like animosity that I got to the point with my relationship with my dad. And that was a, a hard, tricky relationship. And we had a couple falling outs. And so my mental health, I don't think was necessarily the greatest. I think that caused like some emotional trauma for me and some feelings of like abandonment and caused some anxiety in my life. And then the trauma of my mom dying and everything surrounding that, um, like the type of loss, very sudden. Um, I had to move immediately in with other family members. A lot of like the tangible things around like her loss afterwards and issues of boundaries crossing. I felt really isolated and really alone and not validated and recognized and respected. I felt shamed in my grieving process and no one understood like different types of grief and how children process it. And I didn't recognize it in the time. I recognized it a few years later, but I, I know now that I had grown up in a space where with my mom, it was a safe space for communication and it was a safe space for change and it was accepting. And I was immediately removed from that. It was ripped out from under me and I was I've never felt that space with the family that I lived with or any of my other extended family. It wasn't that space. I think that my mom providing that space for me was an anomaly in our family. And I think that was really hard for me and it immediately made me shut down. And I didn't know how to talk to people or interact with people and they didn't know how to talk to me. I think I recognized it, but I didn't realize how bad it was for a long time until I was in college even, or even like out of college. Um, it showed up for me in a lot of different ways, really unsafe ways, really unhealthy ways for me. 
and just this persistent feeling of isolation and loneliness because the people who I loved and who loved me in my life didn't understand or didn't want to do the work and growth. And I had to learn how to do that on my own. And that was really hard. And I'm still working through that. I'm still making those connections to this loss, this trauma that I experienced. And it's really hard. Christine, I resonate so much with you. Like no one was asking you how you were. No one showed you how to do this. No one walked you through it. You had to do it on your own and stuff. So it's something that like I knew was there. And then all of a sudden, like I recognized it in my own self, but I avoided it because it was othered when I was growing up. It was othered. It was not talked about. It was not accepted. So that's something that I still sometimes feel those shame feelings around. And I'm, I'm working through that. So, but I've never been on any medication. I continue to do talk therapy. Trauma-informed movement is very important to me. I do my own work on that of feeling presence in my body, grounding myself. I think I've talked about that on here before. So I won't go too much into my own experience because I'm the host and I feel like I should be or I want to be more of like the question asker. But just to give like some context to why I'm hosting this uh, particular episode, my background is in mental health. I That is my career, my profession at this point. I studied to be a marriage and family therapist and now I'm continuing to pursue that license and along the way just gaining experience doing individual therapy, couples therapy, family therapy, a lot of skills work right now with individuals whose mental health is so severe that it's impacting their ability to carry out just like basic kind of activities of daily living. And so um, I I have a lot of personal experience with mental health as you know, my own kind of thing, but then also as like this subject um, or like this hobby or passion. One thing I wanted to bring up, and I think I'll have to add this in our show notes, but this idea of, you know, we keep talking about trauma. I honestly, I don't even know if we've been using the word trauma a lot, but what we've been discussing, like all of these experiences are experiences that are highly traumatic. And I you know, in the spirit of like breaking things down and making sure we're on the same page, I just want to talk about trauma a little bit. What that even means, because it's a word, again, we throw out a lot. Psychology Today says trauma is a deeply disturbing event that infringes upon an individual's sense of control and may reduce their capacity to integrate the situation or circumstances into their current reality. So they say when most people think about trauma, they tend to think about those who have been exposed to war, combat, natural disasters, physical, sexual abuse, terrorism, or other catastrophic accidents. There are some of the most profound and some may argue the most debilitating experiences one can endure. However, a person does not have to undergo an overtly distressing event for it to affect them. An accumulation of smaller or less pronounced events can still be traumatic, but in the form of what is sometimes referred to as the small t. So, large T traumas and small T traumas. And by large and small, I mean capitalized and uncapitalized. I see the death of um, a parent, your mother, as a very clearly a large T. Um, A lot of what we've been talking about in our stories leading up to that large T 
and after it are filled with countless small teas. I'll be honest that I'm feeling like I've completely disregarded my youth trauma. That's where I feel like mm. I'm at. And I'm like, holy fuck, I said so much. How I oh. said, like, I didn't feel it because I didn't actually feel it then. Uh, I'm kind of embarrassed about that because I'm just like, I know it was there. And probably the audience is like, well, obviously it was still there. And it was, it just didn't deal with, I don't know. I'm having a lot of feelings about that. I just have to say, like, I don't think I've felt safe since then, right? Like, that's where I'm just like, holy fuck. Whoa. Like, I don't, that's why I'm Mm -hmm. so emotional. Mm -hmm. I've created safe spaces in my life on my own. And only within the last couple of years has that really been an actual safe space for me. The last time I felt safe was when my mom was alive. The last time that I felt safe space for change, for communication, for anything was when my mom was alive. Yeah. And I that's terrifying, right? To think of so many years of my life or your or whoever lives like if anyone else feels that way like you just n- didn't feel that safe space. That's so scary to me to think about that and it's so scary to me to think about that 16-year-old, that 18-year-old, that 21-year-old that I was. Yeah. No wonder I did some of the shit that I did. Right? Yeah. Like, no wonder. Yeah. But <clears throat> also, like, I'm, I'm like, almost 20 years older than you. And I still haven't, I don't have that. And I think I have created it for others. Mm, you're a master I, at creating it but, for others. Yeah. But I have not given it to myself. No. So uh, my mind is blown right now. So emotional. Sorry. But I'm grateful also to have that awareness. I'm like, oh, shit, I need that, you know. What do you feel like is coming up for you, Christine, or do you want to move on? I just had never framed it that way, like to use that word. And I think it just, I feel exactly the same. Like, I don't think that I have felt safe since then. And just all the things I've said, like I've created it, I think, masterfully for my family. And... (laughs) But I do, I really don't offer it to myself. I don't think that that's uncommon either. I think that that's quite common. 100%. I do the In, same. Mm-hmm. I think you do it more masterfully. <laughs> uh, I think it's just made me think, of, like, I want that. I deserve that. You do deserve that. We, we all do. deserve I, that. We do. For me, because I haven't felt safe for so long... My therapist and I have come to the realization that I am uncomfortable feeling traditionally safe, like <laughs> whatever that means, which is a total mind fuck. I can say that right. We're explicit because it's like everything in me consciously wants to be safe. I want to feel safe. And then I, I find myself in a situation where I'm looking, I'm like, It's usually actually like I get anxiety or depression or like some kind of symptoms will come up and then I start to look around and I'm like, this makes no sense. It makes no sense in in regards to like things are actually going great right now. Like things are going a little too great. Mm -hmm. Just wait for the ball to drop. (laughs) Always waiting for that ball to drop. Consciously or unconsciously. I mean, because in my head, I'm like, I'm like, this is great. I'm you know, I'm in a healthy relationship. I'm got like a safe 
you know, roof over my head. Like I've got food, I've got like a job, like all these things I've been wanting. And there's like this terror that lives inside of me. And I don't know if it's ever going to go away. I always perceive that as like, just protecting myself. I mean, that's what I constantly do is I'm just protecting myself so that when something traumatic happens or something bad happens, because it will, that I feel more prepared. It doesn't actually work that way, right? It's not like, oh, I've played this story out in my head where blah, blah, blah dies. And here's the steps that I would take. Like that's, that's, I just do that in my head to prepare myself. And so that I feel like I can go on with the day knowing that if that happens, here's how I would handle it. But let's be honest, it doesn't work that way, but it's, it's a coping mechanism, I think. This is interesting to me too, because I've been thinking a lot about risks, um, emotional risks in the last couple of weeks and how I really don't do that. And I want to keep it safe and keep it close and I want to control it. And Mm -hmm. my mind is seriously blown right now. There's so many things that are coming up for me that I'm like, oh yeah, that's, that's probably why I do that, you know? Yeah. I don't want my boat rocked, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and Shadia to speak to your point and then Aaron, I'm going to jump to you. I plan out traumatic events in my head even. Like I let myself feel it. And I'm like, you know, like if, you know, worst fear, partner dying. I, I literally, I play it out and I'm like, there's sometimes I play it out and I'm like, I would kill myself. I just, I can't go on. And then there's other times where I'm like, you know what? I, I will survive. I would survive. But that's like, <laughs> I plan from, you know, as little as like the groceries to like, you know, my partner's dying. And I think that's like a symptom of PTSD as well. Yes. I have imagined those scenarios and specifically like with my partner too, because like that partnership is important to me. Like that's the most important person connection in my life. And I'm fostering that and everything. And, but I've imagined that so many times I've kind of imagined it. And like, there's this part of my brain that I think that I'm soothing when I imagine that. And let me, let me unpack that for a little bit. I personally, in my experience with grieving the loss of my mom, was not allowed to grieve in certain ways. A lot of my boundaries were crossed. I was not given space for a lot of the grief process and to process that trauma. When I imagine those scenarios in my head, I imagine it of, well, this is how I would process it. This is how I would grieve that. I would give myself space. I would make other people give me space to process that. It's almost like I try and relive me being that 16-year-old, not being given that space and not respected and not and had boundaries crossed. And I relive it to soothe it in my brain to say, I have power now to like, if that yeah. were to happen, I have the power and emotional stability and the strength to make sure nobody crosses my boundaries. Does that make sense? Yeah. It like soothes that part of my trauma because I do have, I think, specific trauma about how like my grief was shamed and my boundaries were crossed. And so like when I imagine those scenarios happening now, that's, that's a huge part of that for me. I do the same. And you know, you would think that 
my personality would be like, okay, let's play in the funeral. Let's pull the pictures. Let's whatever. But deep inside, I just want to be like, I'm going to lay in my fucking bed until I want to get out. Like I want to allow that for myself because I never had that before. Nobody allowed that me to do that. And I didn't allow myself to do that. You know, it's this battle. Girl, I feel you on this. I wonder if, I wonder if like this specific scenario, like this, I wonder if this is maybe just like a little bit specific to like early mother loss too. I mean, we were all children when this happened and not given space and we didn't have control or a lot of power. And a part of that is because like we were children in those spaces. And I wonder what that looks like for later mother loss versus this early mother loss that we are all speaking to. And honing in on that idea of powerlessness, I think is really important because that can, you can feel that at any Mm -hmm. age in any situation when you're able to look back on a situation which you are powerless, that is extremely healing, I think, to be able to like re kind of rewrite it in a way. So your point, Erin, I, I would have to think that this largely has to do with early loss. And I mean, I think back to like where we were at developmentally and you don't even know that you have the ability to ask for space to do those things, right? You're really at a point still where people are letting you or showing you through their own actions, like this is okay, you know? And if no one's modeling it for you and no one's, you know, obviously for all of us, they're not speaking to us about it, unfortunately, right? Then we don't know. We just are like, oh, keep on, keep it on. I guess this is my life, you know? And it's really to the detriment. All right. So, Can we all just take a deep breath together? We're going to start to wrap up. Mm, I like that. All right. So that is an example of mental health self-care for me, taking a deep breath, creating pause or space between experiences, physical, emotional. I think it's so important, you know, to end this discussion with some tangible takeaways as we, you know, talked about this, it feels like a really abstract concept. And so if you feel lost still, it's okay. However you feel, it's okay. That's my takeaway for you. Just know that however you're feeling anytime is okay. And you can feel a million different ways at once. And that's okay. So I'll leave you with that. Who's ready with theirs? Yeah, I guess my biggest takeaway was the conversation about duality the emotional part of it and trying to create space for that. So being really like conscious about it and really like Aaron said, naming the feelings and really just allowing both to be there at the same time and feel okay with that. Like no guilt, no shame. Um, Cause a lot of the time I'm so black and white on situations where I'm just like, well, no, sometimes I feel like my life would be so different. You know, if my mom were here, And in almost sometimes good ways, I wouldn't have had like the uh, independence that I had. And I have guilt about that. And so it's like, I can be sad that she's not here, but I also can feel maybe happy for myself that I did get that independence. And that is a really hard thing for me to Mm -hmm. attach to. It's hard for me to even say that out loud. (laughs) 
I think about that a lot, Chad, about who I have become is so much around having experienced that loss. And I'm thankful for who I've become, mm-hmm. <laughs> not just despite her dying, but because she died. Obviously, my takeaway <laughs> is this concept of really not having a safe space since my mom was here. I think that, you know, for me, I I am really in a place of uh, being open um, to doing more for myself. And so um, this is going to be part of it, uh, is is creating that for myself um, and acknowledging that I deserve that. Mm-hmm. Abso-fucking-lutely. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Erin? Everything that you guys said, I've, yes, duality and creating safe space and everything that goes along with that, um, I try and put those things at the forefront of that healing as much as I can. And it's really hard sometimes. And sometimes you mess up and that's okay. But yeah, I think just the duality and holding safe spaces and creating that for yourself in whatever way that looks like. There is no one way to do this, to create a safe space. And whatever that looks like for you, that's okay. And don't let anybody shame you or tell you that it's wrong because it's not. So. Yeah, we'll, we'll vouch for you on that one. <laughs> I was about to be like, we'll beat up whoever tells you otherwise, but that's not really our style. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you all so much. This was this conversation I knew from the get-go was going to be good and deep and heavy and full of so much rich, wise content, and it surpassed my expectations. And so I really appreciate you all being so vulnerable and opening up. And I'm so grateful to have all of you and this connection with this. I was like, how many of us are there? The three of you (laughs) and all of our listeners. Um, I think that that's something I need to work on more is connection with others. Thank you so much for listening this week, everyone. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. We release new content every other Tuesday. Our next episode, which is part three of our four-part series on the impact of early mother loss, we will be talking specifically about boundaries, and you can listen wherever you stream your podcasts. You can also find us online at piecesofyoupodcast.com and on Instagram and Facebook at piecesofyoupodcast. Remember, take care of yourselves, because if we work together, we can make the broken better. When you feel like you need glue to put back pieces of you, then we will work together to make the broken better. When the wounds are fresh and new and you don't think that they'll heal soon, you gotta stay open. Share your story, it will get better Though it doesn't feel like ever And you'll get stronger It's a journey we'll get through together So let us lift you up Let us keep you grounded Do you feel our love? We'll make sure that you feel surrounded Though the tears stream down, wipe them